Parents know kids aren't just little adults. That's why I take mine to the one place with world-renowned doctors who treat children and only children, Boston Children's Hospital. See why U.S. News & World Report ranks us the number one pediatric hospital at bostonchildrens.org parents. From WBUR Boston and Slate, hello and welcome to The Checkup, Greatest Hits Edition, our solidly reported and also somewhat opinionated take on health news you and your family can use. I'm Carrie Goldberg, co-host of the Common Health blog at WBUR.org. And I'm Rachel Zimmerman, also co-host of the Common Health blog. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Carrie. Well, summer is officially here, and so we present to you our summer podcast series, The Checkup Greatest Hits Edition. And we call today's episode... Teenage Zombies! No, nothing at all pains in the asses in search of immediate gratification and peer acceptance. They are abrasive. They are perplexing. They are articulate. With, um, like, um, you know, or, uh, you know what I'm saying, code? Only they can decipher. They are teenage zombies, parents, teachers, Al Sharpton, gather. Ooh, teenage zombies, right? Right. Sleep. Porn and bad decision making. <laughs> Sounds teenish. But first, Carrie, I want you to relax. Ooh, good. And think back, way back when you were young and carefree and when you could sleep, the kind of deep, luxurious sleep that seems to only really happen when you're a teenager and you can rest in bed peacefully until 11, noon, without a care in the world. I'm drifting off right now. So you mean like back when I didn't wake up at 5 a.m. and worry about kid logistics and who's driving who to various activities and do I have enough food in the house for dinner? You mean back then? Right, right, right. No anxiety before the sun is up. No ruminating. Just pure, unadulterated sleep. Yes. It was long ago in a galaxy far, far away. But what's new now about this luxurious long sleep of teens? Well, Carrie, the news is essentially that research over the years is clearly pointing to the fact that teenagers physically can't go to sleep early. It's this hardwired drive to go to bed late and then sleep very, very late into the morning. But that physical reality is disrupted by the reality of having to go to school in the morning very early, sometimes as early as 7.15, 7.30. Ouch. So there's the rub. Kids need to sleep late, but school starts early. So what's being done about this? Well, Marvin Wang is a pediatrician at Massachusetts General Hospital, and he's on a bit of a personal crusade to change this. The American Academy of Pediatrics, which is considered the governing board of pediatric care, there is a very clear statement and a recommendation that all middle and high schools should start no earlier than 8.30 in the morning. Okay, so what bad things tend to happen when teenagers don't sleep enough? Everything suffers. There are tons of studies on the sleep-deprived individuals. You are going to see increased obesity, mm. uh, an increased risk of type 2 diabetes cardiovascular issues like hypertension and stroke. Being sleep deprived will lead to an increased consumption of caffeine and stimulants, so uh, new poor habits. Mental health, there's a lot of literature supporting the idea that sleep deprived people are more likely to be anxious, more likely to be depressed, more likely to have suicidal ideation issues of memory, attention. But what physiologically is going on that makes teenagers need so much more sleep? First, as adults, we need typically around seven to eight hours of sleep just to maintain our 
brain and body function nicely. Okay. Teens need about an hour and a half to almost two hours more, eight and a half to nine and a quarter hours of sleep. This actually has mostly to do with the fact that they're going through puberty. Their brains and their body are going through a lot of growth and development. So、uh, really, it's about getting acclimatized to what's going on physiologically. And the way nature has decided it's going to do that is there's sort of like a two-part mechanism. One part is the hormone melatonin, which will start the sleep cycle for every night. In teens, it turns out that melatonin comes in about an hour later than the rest of us as adults, or even compared to younger children. The second part of it is that teens have a staggered and slowed sleep drive, meaning that even when they feel the hormone kick into effect. It takes them longer to to wind down. To wind or, down exactly. Right, so right. those in combination typically force the teen to naturally want to go to sleep around eleven o'clock at night. They can't just go to sleep earlier. They can't just go to sleep early, and there's this sort of vicious cycle because they're just sort of lying in bed. There's that Let's screen. Let's guess what they're going to do. There's that screen, and that actually increases their wakefulness time because of that sort of continued exposure to bright lights and the stimulus of、uh, whatever it is in the con. That they're reading, right? One of the downstream effects of sleeplessness during the week is that these kids feel like they need to catch up during、on、the, the weekend, right? So it is clearly not a surprise to anybody that a teen on a weekend is going to sleep in until what ten o'clock to noon or so. Can you catch up in that way? You can catch up, but you're running into a vicious cycle. Come Monday, you shock the system back again into trying to get up at six in the morning—a four-hour difference from where it wanted to before. You get a literal jet lag every Monday. Hence that song. I don't like Mondays. I don't、right? like exactly. <laughs> so, do we have any data on school districts that have delayed their start times? Do we know if it really does help? The school district of Minneapolis switched their start time from 7:15 a.m. to 8:40, and every marker, whether it be health, academics, athletics, all just major improvements. Test scores all improved. Even something as obscure as car crashes. Districts that have changed their start time to a later start time, their car crash rate drops by almost 65 to 70 percent among teens. Why don't all schools just do this tomorrow? Basically, a lot of inertia behind change. Of course, the cost argument has typically been uh, transportation, uh, busing. The literature finds that when school districts make the school start time later, they are able to consolidate their、uh, busing strategies. Their cost savings are tremendous. So and it makes sense, and, and it makes sense. Some parents, some students are going to be inconvenienced by it. It's got to be about more than inconvenience. This is central to what a school's mission is, right? I mean, and, what you're talking about is the difference between being able to learn or not. The idea is, if you can have less sleep deprivation. You end up with a healthier child who's going to learn more and who's going to be more successful in life. Okay, so I just have to ask you: Did you get involved in this issue because of any personal experience with your own kids? It seems very personal to you. Well, we don't allow my daughter to have anything with a screen in her room when it's lights out time. But she, she a teenager. Is, she's almost thirteen. She is, however, allowed to have her iPod, and I will say she listens to a huge amount of NPR to put her to sleep. At least it's good for something. It's great for something. <laughs>
All right, maybe we end there. Hey, Rachel, maybe NPR should start producing a line of audio sleeping aids. That is brilliant, Carrie. But let's just pivot from media with a positive effect to media with a dark, insidious side. I'm talking about internet porn and how it can mess up the teenage brain. Ah, like my roommate always talks to me about like his favorite sex positions. And then we'll just talk about, oh, I'll try that one one day. Or we'll decide what women do or don't like. Then you get older, then you see, you know, Sports Illustrated, then you see the Playboys, then you see the porn, and then you see the girls going wild. That, like, I think, I think that's what, when you start learning. Let's first stipulate that we're actually very pro-sex. None of us would be here without it. <laughs> we wouldn't. And another even more pro-sex person is the sex therapist Aileen Zoldbrod, who wrote the book Sex Smart, How Your Childhood Shaped Your Sexual Life and What to Do About It. She is certainly no prude. No. I believe she's the first person to say blowjob on our radio station. <laughs> Let's not remind anybody about that. But the point is, she's a sex therapist and she's very worried about teens and porn. And if she's worried, I'm worried. But why worry, Carrie? Teens, especially boys, have been getting their hands on pornography (laughs) since the time of cave paintings. (laughs) Probably. And Aileen says that porn has helped some of her patients. But now she's sounding an alarm about what she describes as a sexual and relational train wreck. She says porn can damage some adolescent sexual development. It can really hinder their ability to form sexual relationships. So is that because it creates such insanely unrealistic expectations? That and more. Aileen says it may actually even change brain wiring in a problematic way way. What we're seeing now is young men who are so used to having pornographic images in their head and who've been masturbating to very, very vivid images of large penises in vaginas and women that don't talk and very disembodied, objectified pictures of women. And they're masturbating and clicking from one image to another and one image to another. And it's all visuals. You know, we say neurons that fire together, wire together. That means if you train your sexual response to need a very, very high level of stimulation visually, that's what you get used to. There's no way you could have a relationship with a woman who looks normal that would give you the same kind of stimulation that you would get from sitting in front of a computer monitor and clicking on image after image of this woman and then that woman and that shape breast, that shape breast. Very, very, very intense. So, Carrie, it's like heavy porn users get conditioned to need something that real life just cannot offer. Right. And meanwhile, they may be missing out on what they need to learn in real life, like how to have a relationship, which involves slowly getting to know someone, taking emotional risks, accepting imperfection and embracing people for who they really are. Right. The opposite of porn. Yeah. They're losing comfort in the beginning of relationships and things going slowly in touching and maybe trusting and not worrying about having to perform with a gigantic rock-hard penis all the time, which is what kids get used to when they're masturbating. It creates a huge amount of anxiety if you're used to pleasuring yourself to very high stimulation kinds of porn, and then you're in 
bed or you're trying to form a relationship with a woman and you feel like you're expected to have an erection that big and that hard just from hanging out with her or going to the movies and people are getting really scared and it's causing sexual dysfunction. And then the sexual dysfunction makes them want to withdraw from the real relationship. They come home from a date where they feel like they failed because they didn't have an erection and so they didn't feel like they could pursue the kissing or the dating. And then they come home and they sue themselves by going to more porn. So it's a vicious circle. Okay, I get the picture. So what are we parents supposed to do about it? Aside from using porn blocking technology on our computers or just taking the computers away altogether, <laughs> yeah, good which luck. obviously is completely unrealistic. Right. So Aileen says she's asking parents to have a really difficult conversation with our kids. Nothing like the old, you'll go blind if you do this, but something much more nuanced. I am asking parents to have what is going to be a really difficult conversation, not just to have the sex conversation, but to say to their kids, Listen, you're very likely to run into pornography on the Internet these days. And they can describe what they think the pornography is. And then to, to just say, I want you to know that this is not real sex. The penises that you see are not normal-sized penises. The way women are reacting is not how women really react. That's not how women like to be approached. This isn't really what sex is. And a number of other very concrete comments like that. And then to say to their kids, if you run into it, and it makes you feel aroused or it makes you feel good and then you feel guilty, come to me and talk to me about it. I won't be mad at you for it. I'll understand. Hmm. So she's sounding tolerant, but doesn't this send a kind of a sex is bad sort of message? Well, it might sound a bit like that, Rachel, but she really is pro-sex. She's just for a more healthy, realistic kind of sex. Okay, Carrie, I, I'm just not quite ready to tell my kids to have lots of flesh and blood fun with their friends. <laughs> and since they're only 9 and 12 right now, I probably have a few more years to ponder all this. You may have less time than you think, Rachel. And it can be especially hard because teenagers are not always known for making the greatest decisions when it comes to risk. Yes, I do remember my own reckless teenage years. Kind of amazing we survived. I, I don't even want to think about it. Okay, so let's just take a moment here to mention our sponsor. When our son broke his arm, we didn't think he needed special attention. I didn't when I broke mine. But it was easy to see a doctor at Boston Children's Hospital, so we went. They noticed the break was on his growth plate. That meant a little fracture could have been a lot more serious. Now we wouldn't take him anywhere else. No matter what it is, simple or not so simple. Because nothing's more important to us than getting our kid back to being a kid again. See why U.S. News and World Report ranks Boston Children's Hospital the number one pediatric hospital at bostonchildrens.org slash parents. Okay, so back to teenagers and bad decision making. So brain scientists now have a far better understanding of why we did all those crazy, risky things when we were teenagers without really thinking through the consequences. 
basically, we should all have T-shirts printed up to say, it's the neuroscience, stupid. (laughs) Meaning that the adolescent brain is just not organized yet in a way that's best for deliberate decision making. Exactly. Judy Edersheim is a forensic psychiatrist and co-director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior. In fact, she's a doctor and a lawyer. Hmm. And she says that in the teenage years, the brain's structure and wiring start to change dramatically. Yes, there are really some very basic brain changes that are happening from about 14, 13, even as late as age 25 or 26. Hmm. And they're really in two big categories. One involves the frontal lobes and the business end of the brain cells, so gray matter. Um, People have heard of gray matter. That's really the computational center of the brain. And adolescents have some deficits that are associated with frontal lobe functions, like planning and thinking about the future. In thinking consequentially, perceiving what future consequences might come from your actions from inhibiting impulses. And I think Lawrence Steinberg from Temple, a great neuroscientist, used to say that an adolescent is like a car with a really great accelerator and really poor brakes. And that's, <laughs> that's that characterizes yeah, the adolescent brain. Totally. But we know something else, which is that adolescents have intellectual development before they have emotional and social development. Aha, uh-huh. that's important. Any parent of a teenager right. knows that. Right. That's why you don't allow your 13-year-old to get married. It's why you can't sign up for the military when you're 14. Right. We deprive adolescents of certain rights of citizenship because we know they make bad decisions and they do them very quickly. And what the neuroscience is showing us is that we're getting closer to pinpointing the conditions under which adolescents make bad decisions arousal, thrills, when their peers are present, when there's a big reward. They're wired via their dopamine system to be very attracted to rewards biologically and neurobiologically. But in calmer contexts, they make good decisions. They make decisions that look awfully like adult decisions. So it's not that they can't make a good decision. It's that context really matters. So that's one issue. Get them out of the heat immediately. If you want them to make a good decision, keep them away from gangs. Keep them away from antisocial peers. Keep them away from contexts where the decision-making has to be immediate and where they might focus on rewards because that's what their brain is telling them to do. Hmm. But, okay, so you have a situation where they're among peers, and let's even not think about them being in gangs. Where's the intense reward from doing something stupid because everybody else is doing it? Well, that's a, that's a great question because it goes to how we all understand in what ways adolescents are different. Peer approval is a piece of it. But if you combine having the approval of your peers mean much more to a teen than to an adult with the inability to appreciate the consequences the way an adult does, that combination is terrible. You've got peer approval, you've got thrills, and you've got really a poor sense of the future and what consequences might flow from what you do. So if your three best friends are telling you to take your skateboard and ride it down the side of a moving train, the ability to evaluate that in the moment is going to be poor, and your ability to think, gosh, this train is moving, I might get hurt, that's also compromised in 
in your average adolescent and your average 16-year-old. So it's the combination of the salience of the bad things and the inability to think about the consequences. That is the perfect storm that makes adolescence so irresponsible for the most part. So I have to ask, Rachel, how this played out in the Marathon Bomber case, where, as everyone now knows, Jahar Tarnayev was sentenced to death for a crime he committed at age 19. Most of us anticipated that juvenile neuroscience would play some role in the sentencing phase of the Tsarnaev trial. Mm -hmm. So the defense called a very distinguished expert. Jay Geed was their expert. Mm -hmm. He's a very prominent and reputable neuroimager. He talked in general terms about deficits in planning and impulse control and immaturity and impulsivity and the recklessness that we see in our teenagers. And the moral deficits as well, right? That's another aspect of this. Is that right? Yes. Right. That socialization, empathy, emotional reactivity, all of those things develop later in adolescence. So he was asked does this mean that an adolescent can't plan? And he answered, no. Does right. it mean that they really don't understand consequences? And he respectfully said, no. Right. He acknowledged that the individual variations among adolescents is very wide. And the group data can give you group answers, that adolescents might be immature in general, but you do have to look at the adolescent in particular, right. and say, what does his behavior tell you? Because right. the behavior always trumps the scans. This seems like this might always be a problem. Yes, in general, teenagers act this way. But in this case, I mean, are there any cases where the neuroscience really was a real explanation of what happened? Well, what the Supreme Court has said is that adolescent brains are different, and they've recognized that those brains are different in legally relevant ways. Which Supreme Court cases are you talking about here? There is a very interesting trilogy of cases, Roper, Graham, and Miller, mm -hmm. that together really recognize the importance of neuroscience evidence and the mountains of behavioral evidence that shows that teenage brains are different, mm -hmm. and that teenagers are less blameworthy than grown-ups, and perhaps even more importantly, they can change. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. But we also know something else about brains. We know that adolescent brains are really, as, as Lawrence Steinberg would say, moving parts get broken. What that means is that if you put an adolescent with a moving parts brain under toxic environmental conditions, they will have permanent trajectories into criminality and recidivism. We know this. We've now spent 20 years putting teenagers in adult jails, and they remain bad. When if you left them alone, 80 to 95% of them automatically desist in their 20s. Hmm. They grow up. They grow up. They get invested in society. They have things that matter. Their peers have modeled good behavior for them. They've been in a community that supports positive development. But if you put them in jail, you put them with antisocial adults. They are assaulted. They are sexually assaulted much more than grown-ups in jail. They are deprived of all their experiments in learning and exploring the world. And uh, adolescents are particularly uh, attuned to learning opportunities that are environmental. They learn from the environment they're pickled in. And if they're pickled in adult jail, that's what they learn. And so how you treat an adolescent is also very relevant. 
It's not just, should we put someone in grown-up jail, but what are the ingredients to producing a healthy, pro-social adult? Do you have an opinion on that? What are the ingredients, the key ingredients? What an average teenager needs to grow up properly is a safe environment where they can experiment with their identities and where they can not witness violence and not have the kind of toxic stress that we know will have neurodevelopmental consequences for the future. And that is not hard on crime or soft on crime. That's just smart on crime. How are we going to make adolescents into healthy adults? So, Rachel, an important question. Sounds like some real unintended consequences there. Absolutely. And maybe it's time for a good, hard look at the policy. I mean, it sounds like she's calling for a top-to-bottom reevaluation of the juvenile justice system. So that's all for today. Listen to The Checkup next time for a much lighter topic, an episode that we're calling Muffin Top, as in the muffin top of fat that has appeared above my belt since this winter. The most delicious part of the muffin is the top. We'll talk about a mindful approach to muffin tops and whether we've outgrown Weight Watchers. Also, a powerful new technique that boosts motivation to get healthier. The Checkup is produced at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station, by George Hicks, who also composed and performed our theme music. The executive editor of WBUR Podcasts is Iris Adler. Andy Bowers and Joel Meyer run Slate Podcasts. I'm Carrie Goldberg. And I'm Rachel Zimmerman. See you next time. See you, Rachel. See you, Carrie.